I've heard more conversations about race in America this week than I think I have in the last year. Uh, maybe in my lifetime, honestly, put together. And I've heard everyone's opinion about it. I've heard elected officials, both nationally and the state level and locally, talk about it. I've heard Facebook's opinions, which, whoo! Uh, I've heard my family's opinions. I've heard your opinions. But ultimately, as the people of God, there is only one opinion that floats to the top that matters for us. And that is, what is God's opinion about race in America? Thankfully, he's not left us in the dark. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Now, one of Jesus' disciples, John, is getting a tour, a sneak peek of heaven and things to come. And this great multitude was from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So here's what we learn about God's kingdom. It is multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual. And that's really great news for, I'm guessing, every single person in this room. Amen. Many of us consider ourselves insiders in every room that we walk in. Not only are we the first ones invited to the party, most of us feel like we are the ones throwing the party. But in this instance, when it comes to the kingdom of God, unless you happen to be of Jewish descent today, you are, in fact, an outsider. And if God's kingdom was not multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual, you would not be a part of it. Now, some would say, well, this is God's kingdom to come. One day it will be. Lots of races, lots of nations, lots of languages. In fact, pastors, just like me in the 1950s and 60s, used that exact same thinking to stay, say that uh, the South should remain segregated. One day, God's going to mix us all together, but not today. In fact, it's better if we stay separate today and let him work it out another day. But those pastors forgot Jesus' prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what Jesus is praying and asking his father for is that God's multilingual, multinational, multi-ethnic kingdom would in fact come to earth. And how does God's kingdom come to earth? But through his people. So we're obligated today. We're obligated today. Now we don't have much control out there. We do have some measure of control in here. Bayou City should reflect God's multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual kingdom. And by God's grace, it will. Now, all of us agree on that. Amen. Uh, all, all of us do. Um, the how, it's a little bit trickier. A little bit more complicated. Sometimes a little bit more offensive. But thankfully, Jesus didn't leave us in the dark about that either. He spoke directly to 
this issue in Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Take a Bible and turn there with me. Lots of people are saying this week, why does everything always have to be about race? Why can't it just be about football? Everybody wants to bring up race all the time. I can't answer those questions. You'll have to talk to those people directly. But the reason we're bringing it up today is because Jesus brought it up. In fact, he brought it up out of nowhere. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, he didn't have to talk about race. He could have encouraged us to love our neighbor in lots of different ways. But in fact, he does bring up race. It speaks very specifically and boldly to it. In fact, you cannot read and understand the parable of the Good Samaritan if you subtract race from it. Because the story, as you remember, and you know it even if you didn't grow up in church, is about a Jewish man who was walking along the side of the road and was beaten by robbers, left for dead. Another Jewish man, a priest, walked by, ignored him. Another Jewish man, a Levite, walked by, ignored him. But a Samaritan man came and helped him. And the same racial tension that's in America is present in the first century between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. We speak in code words, languages, and stereotypes. They were just a little bit more direct about it. They weren't ashamed about the way they hated one another. If you ever looked at a map in the back of your Bible, you'll see that Israel in the north is up at the top, and Israel at the south, where Jerusalem is, is down at the bottom, right in the middle, sandwiched between, was Samaria, where the Samaritans were from. And if you were a Jewish person in the north and you needed to get down to Israel in the south, which you did multiple times a year, you would walk all the way around Samaria. Imagine going out of your way to avoid a whole region, a whole country, a whole nation, a whole ethnicity. Because you hated them so much and they hated you back. And this is what Jesus uses to encourage us to love our neighbor. Verse 25, and behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This parable was very challenging for Jesus' original listeners that day pressed all of their buttons. If we apply this parable in our culture, it will push our buttons as well. And I want to encourage you to let that happen. Because if Jesus doesn't challenge us today and push us, we will only love some of our neighbors. 
We'll only love the neighbors that look like us, think like us, act like us, see the world like us. So if we are serious Jesus followers today, we have to let him push us. And in order to push us, he's going to push some of our buttons. But we're going to linger behind it. We may be a little bit slower than we'd like to be, but we're going to stay with him. There are four things that I want you to remember when we leave today. Number one, my perspective may be wrong and need realigned by Jesus. My perspective may be wrong and need realigned by Jesus. Verse 29 says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So this lawyer comes to him and to test him. And says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, the lawyer already knew the right answer in his own mind. He asked the question so that he could give the answer and have Jesus affirm him in front of all of these people. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus says, how do you read it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've said it correctly. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he, he wanted to double dip. And any prideful people in here, I know I'm the only one, but any prideful in here, people in here know what that's like. You got a little bit of affirmation, let's double down, let's get the whole thing. Maybe some people in the back didn't quite hear it. And who is my neighbor? Now, again, the lawyer already knows the answer. The people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish people, God's people, they are my neighbor. And by the end of this parable, Jesus says, no, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. But it all started with him wanting to justify himself. He wanted affirmed by Jesus. I've mentioned to you many times, but I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. Springfield is the third largest city in Missouri. There's St. Louis, there's Kansas City, and then there's Springfield. St. Louis is a very diverse place. Kansas City is a very diverse place. And yet Springfield... No diversity whatsoever. I don't have any statistical evidence uh, to back that up. I just look around, and it's obvious, right? So growing up in elementary and middle school and high school and beginning part of college, uh, I would have told you that it was not a racially charged place because no one used the N-word. No one that I knew told racially charged jokes because there was no us and them. There was just us. I moved to Houston when I was 20 years old, and learned a few lessons about what it was like to live in a multicultural city. But those were surface lessons, mostly. Those are the lessons that were easy to learn. A few years ago, Amanda began to read and learn and listen about what it was like to be a part of uh, the minority culture and not the majority culture. And when you are learning something, you want to talk about it with people. You want to get out what is going on on the inside. And so I remember I came home from work one day, and she wanted to talk about these things. And um, some of the things that she was saying, I, I didn't want to listen to at first, because what she was trying to convince me of was that I was born with a head start as a white man here in America. But all I heard in my ears was that I had not personally worked hard for what I had. That's not what she was saying, but that's what I was hearing. So we got into, I know you guys don't do this, but we got into an argument. (laughs) I know your marriages are all perfect and you keep it gentle. And when you do have disagreements, you hold hands and you look deeply into one another's (laughs) eyes. You say, I just want to say as we discuss these things that I love you so much and I'm committed to you. That's what you do. That's not what we did that day. 
We begin to argue, and I begin to remind her that you know me. I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I didn't come from a wealthy family. I'm the first person in my extended family to graduate from college. I've worked hard for everything that I have. You know me. You know that I leave early. You know that I stay late. In fact, it bothers you when I stay late. That's how hard of a worker I am. And we didn't come to peace that day. We came to peace relationally because we stopped talking about it. A few weeks later, I came home from work again. It's a dangerous thing for me to come home from work. (laughs) And we began discussing these things again and started to argue again. But the seeds that had been sown in that first argument began to be harvested just a little bit in the second argument. And my eyes were open just a little, just a little. Because I was like the lawyer. I just wanted what I already believed and the story that I already written in my own mind to be affirmed by everyone. And when someone was unwilling to affirm it, it bothered me. It bothered me. I, I wanted to be justified. See, one of the most powerful questions that you and I can ever ask God is God, am I wrong? God, am I wrong? Now, you will not be encouraged ever in our culture to ask that question. You don't ever have to be wrong, ever. No matter where you're at in the political spectrum, you can find a news outlet that will tell you exactly what you want to hear from your perspective. I know websites to go to. I know websites to avoid. I know pundits to listen to. I know pundits who are not getting it right. I can align myself with people who will just tell me what I want to hear, affirm what it is I already believe. But in order to love our neighbor as ourself, we're going to have to ask God, is my perspective wrong here? And if so, will you realign it with the only perspective that matters? Jesus' perspective. Second thing that I want you to remember The status quo is not an excuse. The status quo is not an excuse. In the parable, first a priest goes by and ignores the Jewish man who was robbed and beaten. And then a Levite passes by and ignores him as well. Now these were men of God. The priest stood in between God and people. He would make sacrifices so that sins could be forgiven. He was a mediator. Uh, The Levite was... Uh, born literally to help the priest do the priestly service. These were men of God. They were born into lineages to serve God. They were respected in their communities, both nationally and locally. So imagine the cover that these two men could give give for normal people like us coming behind. Well, if the priest didn't stop and help this man, maybe he knew something that I don't know. If the Levite didn't stop, and the Levite is born to serve God and to serve people, and if he didn't stop to help, maybe he knows something that I don't know. I was uncomfortable with stopping and helping this man who's beaten and broken and bleeding anyway. And Honestly, I didn't really want to because I'm kind of in a hurry. So if the priest didn't do it, I don't have to do it. And if the Levite didn't do it, I don't have to do it. So we need to be careful about just following the path that those in front of us cut for us just because they were in front of us. 
I'm so grateful for every person who has spoken into our lives, who's led us, who has taught us. But just because they came before doesn't make them right. Doesn't mean that they have all the perspective. I remember in a history class in high school, learning about how when we freed ourselves as Americans from England, the United States government wasn't established in that moment. They didn't have it all pre-planned. They only had the seeds of what would become our democracy. And so it took them about 10 years to actually flesh it all out. Eventually, they settled on, we want to be a representative democracy. So you and I, we don't go to Washington, D.C. to vote. We vote for those and elect those who will go and vote on our behalf. So they settled on that. But then how are we going to choose our representatives? How much representation are we going to get? And you can imagine all the states vying for the most representation possible so that their voice could be heard the loudest. And eventually they had to address the question is, what are we going to do about slaves? Most black people in America at the time were slaves. Are we going to count them as part of the population or are we not? And I remember learning in history class, just as you did, about the three-fifths compromise in which the United States government compromised and said, we will count these human beings made in the image of God as only three-fifths of a person. They did this for 75 years. Now, what's striking is the teacher who was teaching us wasn't outraged by the three-fifths compromise. She didn't take a moment to pause and tell us about how awful it was. Now, these are human beings. They were not treated like human beings. She just taught it to us like it was a fact, in a book of facts. So because she wasn't outraged, I wasn't outraged. I didn't think about it later on. But the status quo, what those who did before us should not give us cover to only love some of our neighbors, but in fact, all of our neighbors. Number three, I notice and I stop to help. I notice and I stop to help. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The first thing that he did was he saw him. That's step one for most of us today is to recognize that there are other people having a different experience in this world than us. We have to see people. A couple of months ago, some friends from church invited our family to the lake to be on their boat. And that's where you want to be in life is you want friends with a boat. You don't want to own the boat. You want friends with the boat. It's much cheaper. So we're on the lake. But Lake Conroe on the boat having a great time. And if you've been up there, you know that they have neighborhoods right on the lake that just got these massive, amazing, beautiful mansions right on the lake. And this one neighborhood we were driving on the boat alongside, I mean, these beautiful stucco homes. And I love the architecture, kind of a European Mediterranean look with the, the tile roof. Uh, but uh, the stucco that they had chosen, this entire neighborhood had chosen was like this reddish brown color. I was just amazed at why you would spend a million dollars plus on, on, on this home and on the lake and this beautiful neighborhood, and, and you would choose that ugly color. 
and not the kind of normal, you know, Spanish white stucco that you see in magazines and movies. I just thought, man, it would have been so much more beautiful. And it wasn't like it was like one or two homes that had chosen this, but the entire neighborhood had chosen this. And I thought, what kind of weird homeowners association that uh, would make you choose this color? And I actually said something about it on the boat, but Apparently, I like I'm the only weirdo that thinks about architecture and stucco, you know, on a beautiful day at the lake. And so nobody really said anything. They were probably embarrassed that they go to church with us after I had said that. But we had a great time the rest of the day driving by and looking at those that neighborhood again. And I'm like, geez, I just look bothered for these people that they would choose that ugly color. And then I realized I was wearing sunglasses. So I lifted up the sunglasses. Sure enough, beautiful Spanish white stucco with their (laughs) Mediterranean architecture and tile roof. I couldn't see it accurately because of the filter that I had on. The the Samaritan man, he he saw, he, he saw the Jewish man beaten alongside the road. We have to see people but we need to ask ourselves, am I wearing a filter that is preventing me from seeing what's actually there? Most of us, you know, we didn't ask for a filter. In a lot of ways we were born with it or it was passed down to us and nobody said, hey, we're passing down this filter through which you'll view all of life. But we have to see people and we have to see people the way that Jesus sees them and then the Samaritan had compassion on him. He felt for him. And this is powerful because the Samaritan man could have very easily identified with the robbers. He could have said, well, this Jewish guy probably deserved it. I know another Jewish guy and he said this to me and you'll never believe what this Jewish family did to my family. And and so maybe this guy deserved it or maybe he didn't deserve it, but he's standing in beaten and bloodied on the side of the room for all the Jewish guys out there who do deserve it. He could have easily identified with the robbers. Because all of us, we wear these labels. Um, Conservative, progressive, white, black, Latino, middle class, upper class. We all wear these labels, these self-identified tags. And they're powerful because most of the time they're true. Many of us are white, conservative people. We wear these tables and these labels and tags and what happens is we have a certain loyalty to these labels because they are true. Just like the Samaritan man could have said, well, I'm a Samaritan and that guy's a Jewish man and I don't know that I should help him. See, we have to ask ourselves where our loyalties lie. Jesus is clear about where they should lie. Uh, You remember he said that he didn't come to bring peace. Uh, He came to bring a sword. And he was going to pit father against son and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and brother against sister and brother. I feel like that's what we're watching right now in America as we are battling it out. Not over ideologies, but over our loyalty to our labels entrenched in my tags. He spoke even clearer about our loyalties 
when he said, if you don't hate your mother and father and sister and brother and mom and dad and wife and kids, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. So what Jesus would tell us today is we got to take off all these tags. Whether they're true or not, we got to take them all off. Whether it's your political bent or your ethnicity or your economic status, you got to take off all those and you just put on a kingdom tag. That's it. All your loyalty goes to Jesus. That's it. And he does not tolerate any other loyalties. Any other loyalties that would compete with your loyalty to him, he doesn't tolerate. And if today you would be like, well, I'm this and a Christian, he would say you are not a Christian. I mean, he'd be less blunt about it, so I'm speaking on his behalf. I mean, I would be like, you know, well, I don't know, maybe... But he would just say, no, you are, can't be my disciple if you're going to be loyal to something else above me and my kingdom. Amen. And if we are going to love our neighbor as ourself, especially our diverse kingdom neighbors, it is going to challenge our loyalties. And in that moment, we're not just choosing, will I help or will I not help? Will I love or will I not love? We are choosing, who am I wearing? Am I wearing Christ or am I wearing something else that's uncomfortable and it bothers me because I'm like the lawyer and I want to say my opinions and I want the world to affirm them. But we have to have compassion. We have to see people and then have compassion. But our compassion, our empathy are consistently thwarted by two little words. Yeah, but. Yeah, sad that that guy is beaten on the side of the road but I'm a Samaritan and he's a Jewish person yeah he's beaten and bloodied and might die but he should have known better than to walk down this dangerous road you see yeah but very clearly in the aftermath of Charlottesville see those pictures of those white supremacists with their signs hating black people and Jewish people. And if you weren't offended about the black people, you you have to stand against white supremacy because of what they were talking about, the Jewish people, because your Lord is Jewish. We saw the pictures. We saw the hate. The counter-protesters came, and what you heard was, yeah, the white supremacists, I mean, that was bad. But if they had never came to counter-protest, nobody would have gotten hurt. Yeah, but. Now suddenly I found an excuse for why I don't have to love my neighbor who wears a different tag and label than me. We have to have compassion and empathy that go beyond our self-identification. When we read or watch the news, how often do we see it from a perspective that's different than ours? How often do we side with the other person in the story who doesn't look like us or is not where we are from? There's something unspoken here in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan man is on his horse or donkey that he's riding. We know that because later on he's going to lift up the broken and bloody Jewish man on top of it. So in this parable, Jesus is saying to us, we cannot love our neighbor from our high horse. You can't. You got to get down. 
And we should be okay with getting down because Jesus got down for us. This is the gospel. The gospel is the prince of heaven. He's chosen as the suffering servant of God who came, died on the cross to take away our sins. That's why he has the name that is above every name. Philippians chapter two says, because he descended to the lowest place, the place of a servant, the place of a slave. So you and I, there should be no hint of supremacy in us because in every room that we walk in, we should be asking not how can I get the most elevated, but where is the lowest place in this room? Because that's where I gotta be because that's where Jesus is gonna be in the lowest place. And from the lowest place, you're free to love and serve everybody. From the lowest place, you're not worried about your place in the room. You're worried about everyone else's place. How can I lift you? How can I serve you? How can I make your life better? How can I help you in any way? Those are the questions that we have to ask as Jesus followers. And the great news is the scripture promises us if we will go low, Jesus will lift us up. And trust me, The elevation that you can get yourself to is way, way, way. It's just a foothill for how high Jesus can lift you. And that's why I said, if you want to be first, you got to be last. If you're always trying to be first, you're going to end up last. We follow him all the way down to the lowest place so we can serve everyone. And then it says that the man bound up his wounds. And notice he didn't pour antibiotics in the wound. It says pouring on oil and wine. Now, to my knowledge, that's not that helpful. In fact, I'd be like, don't pour that stuff in me. That's like for food. But it's just what he had. He, he put on what he had. I don't know how much power we have to bind up the wounds of America, but a great next step for us is just to acknowledge that there are wounds there. There are wounds. People are showing their frustration. We don't say, well, you're not seeing it correctly. We acknowledge their wounds. For 75 years, black people in this country were counted three-fifths a human being. For the next 73 years, there were 4,000 lynchings of black people in just 12 states, Texas being one among those. That is a lynching every six days. Right after that, the Jim Crow laws in the South saying we can't eat at the same restaurants and we can't use the same bathroom and we can't drink out of the same water fountain. So when we see frustrations of our black brothers and sisters, we don't say, well, you don't get it. We realize that time has not healed all. And we acknowledge, we acknowledge them. This hurricane relief has presenting, presented us with a real life opportunity to live out the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because we're going into homes consistently now, knocking on the door saying, can we help you? These homes are sopping wet. These homes are dangerous to be in. When we send teams in, they go in with the equivalent of a hazmat suit and a very specific breathing mask because it's dangerous just to be in there for just an hour or two. And these people are living in their homes still, but they're reluctant to have us help. Some of them because they are undocumented immigrants here. And they're afraid if we come and help, we'll bring attention that they don't want. I'm not going to tell you what you should do in that moment. but you have a choice to make. 
Yeah, but taxes. Yeah, but jobs. Yeah, but borders. Between you and Jesus in your seat right now. And who was the neighbor? That's a question I can't answer for you. You can't answer for me. You're gonna have to answer for yourself. The fourth thing that I want you to remember, finally, I follow up and I follow through. If I wanna love my neighbor as myself, I follow up and I follow through. Verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan man didn't just drop him off at the inn and say, hey, good luck. I've done my part. I got him from A to B and now you take him from B to C and hopefully somebody else will take him from C to Z. He said, I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna follow up. I'm gonna follow through. I'm gonna make sure that this man is restored in the way that he should be. I don't know the future. I'm not much of a prophet, but here's what I do know. I want Bayou City to have a reputation of caring about these things that people in our town would know that Bayou City wants to love all of the neighbors in Houston. And they're willing to ask the hard questions. They're willing to look at themselves in the mirror. They're willing to argue about it a little bit and be together and wrestle with these things and love one another like family. Because Jesus has pushed us and we've pushed one another so that we don't just love some of our neighbors. We have a reputation for compassion and empathy and justice. Why? Because Jesus prayed a prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like I said, we don't have a lot of control out there, but we do have some measure of control in here. God, your kingdom come in Houston as it is in heaven, in Bayou City as it is in heaven. And we're not gonna settle for anything less. Let's pray. Why don't you, in the spirit of prayer, just ask God directly, God, who is the neighbor that you are encouraging me to love right now? Thank you for pushing us. We're thankful that you loved your neighbors as you loved yourself and you died for us. So you save us from our sin. We just want to follow you. So give us the strength, boldness, and courage. In Jesus' name.